Let me tell you what my goal is. The reason I put these down for you, if, if I had a prayer for you, and I'm not presumptuous to thinking that this stuff is going to be so great that, oh, it's going to change your life. I hope it will. But I'm not assuming that. But um, this is more of a global kind of message. In other words, it's designed to help you understand how to make progress as a Christian and structure your life as a Christian. So it's, it's kind of some big issues. And it grows out of what Rob was teaching last Wednesday night, which is Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2, which is one of, in my view, one of the most important passages in the book of Hebrews. Um, and just to give you some ideas by way of introduction, I think there are two tragedies uh, for Christians. One is that they don't run any race. They just live their lives, oh, I hope I can make it through today. Oh, I made it through today. Okay, I can hit the sack, get up the next morning. Oh, I hope I can make it through today. And that's how they live their lives, trying to get through. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy because it's a waste of a life. So some people have the tragedy that they aren't running any race. Other people have the tragedy that they're running the wrong race. There are two interesting words in business management. One is efficiency. And efficiency could be defined as doing things right. For example, efficiency could be, oh, you've got the paper over there and the copy over here. If you'd move the paper over here, you wouldn't have to take so many steps, okay? That's efficient, and there are so many people who are obsessed with efficiency that they forget the second word, which I think is more important. That second word is effectiveness. Efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. Does that make sense? Peter Drucker, who is one of my heroes growing up. He was a management consultant uh, and uh, actually was a believer. And he had this great saying. He said, so many people are climbing the ladder of success only to discover that it was leaning against the wrong wall. Make sense? So there, there are some Christians who are running the race of trying to get as much wealth as they possibly can accrue. And, and they're very successful. They get very wealthy and they, they say no to a lot of things in order to finish that race of getting a lot of money. And I met a lot of guys like that. They're older and they're used and they, they do. They have a boatload of money. But they've sacrificed their family. They've sacrificed their faith. They've sacrificed usefulness to God so that they could run that race. You see, we, we can only do one thing really well in life. We can't do a whole bunch of that. We, we can do one thing really well, and then we have to decide not to do other things too well. Uh, some people are running the race of, of success for their kids. I, I, I know guys who their kids showed some athletic ability, and so they, they'd hire coaches, and they'd spend money, and they'd work with their kids. And And it was interesting because I was doing a, a parenting clinic one time with dads. 
And I suggested to the dads, if they have 13 or 14-year-old sons, to ask their sons what they, the son thought, that the father thought was most important for them. And when dad did that, he said, he talked to his son, he said, what do you think I think is most important for you? And the son that said, that's easy. You want me to be the all-star. You want me to be a great athlete. And the father was devastated because all this time he had sort of been deceiving himself that he had been a father building spiritual truth into his son. And all he had been doing is teaching his son to play baseball. So there's a lot of different racetracks that we could run on in this life. And what I want to do tonight is very simple. Number one, I want to answer the question, what is the race? You know, the author of Hebrews challenged us to run the race that is set before us. Unfortunately, he didn't tell us what that race is. I gave us some clues. I want to take you through some scripture to help you understand what that race is and what it looks like to actually run that race. And then I want to take some time and go through how do we run this race in a way that's going to lead us to a life of success. There's a book I'd like to suggest to you. Outside of the Bible, this book has had more influence on me than any other book ever written. Like I say, outside of the Bible, the book is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I read that as a sixth grader. I read it again as a high schooler and again as a college student. And the reason I love this book and what I I want you to understand as we get into our thinking, most Americans think of life very wrongly. They think of life as a series of cycles. Well, today's another Wednesday. And if I blow today, no problem, because next week I have another Wednesday. Okay, so we, we get this idea, okay, this year... Uh, I'll, I'll get to it sometime. You know, they uh, years ago, they used to put out a little button, and the button was called Around To It. Have you heard those? And it was for husbands who always say, I'll get around to it. Okay, here's your round to it. Now would you get to it? And so the thing is, when we think of life as a series of cycles, we give our ourselves permission to put off important things to do what we want to do. And so we never set aside our desires to actually get to the important things because we always keep thinking, oh, I'm going to have more chances. That's not a problem. I can do that uh, when I get a, a shot. But the mindset of John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress the mindset of Paul and the author of Hebrews when they talk about a race is that life is not a series of cycles. Life is a journey. Okay, now think about the difference. Today is what, uh, April the 19th, 2017. It's almost over. You had one shot at today. And when this day is over, you will never see this day again. Okay, the opportunities that came to you this day came and left. 
Opportunities always flow one way from, from the present to the past. And once they hit the past, they're gone. You can't reclaim them. And so as we get into this, I want you to think about this whole concept of your life being a journey. Now let's read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and we're going to use that as a jumping off point. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, cloud of witnesses, obvious, Hebrews 11. <laughs> I mean, these guys, the picture is these guys are up in the stands. They've run their race. Now they're cheering you on to the finish line. So these are our cloud of witnesses. He said, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Encumbrances, by the way, are weights. Uh, it would be like if I'm training, I might put on ankle weight, weights and, and, and uh, hand weights. And I, you know, but when I get to running the race, it would be stupid for me to keep wearing those weights because that would slow me down and it would burn up energy. Encumbrances in Hebrews thought are things that are not sinful, but they take up time and energy and resources. Let me give you an example. And again, I don't want to go on a big anti-TV dialogue. I'm not against TV, but I do get frustrated when American Christians spend between six and eight hours a day in front of some kind of a screen, either wandering on the internet and not, you know, not even going on porn sites. It's not that you're doing something evil. It's just that you're killing time. And so as you, as you look at your life, one of the things you might realize, wow, you know, I'm adding things up and I'm spending 18 to 20 hours a week watching TV or surfing the internet or doing things that are not evil, but they're not kingdom building either. And so those are the kind of decisions we're talking about when we talk about running the race. So he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance. And then he talks about the sins which so easily, easily entangle us. Those are, and, and I hope you realize, do you know Satan has go-to sins in your life? When, whenever you get some, some uh, momentum building, he has that one thing he knows that he can bring into your life. Boom, he's got you. Got you on your face. All your momentum has stopped and you got to start to build it all up again. Those are what I call entangling sins. They're either habitual sins. They're a structural weakness in your life. It might be uh, maybe you're prone to depression or discouragement. Uh, maybe you're prone to anger uh, maybe you're prone to, uh, you know, kind of histrionics, you know, huh? Donuts. Yes, whatever, you know, all sorts of things. And, and Satan's very smart. He doesn't attack you all the time in those areas. He just waits for the moment of opportunity. And then he attacks you when he needs to stop you. So those are entangling sins. So then the author challenges us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, what is that race? One of the reasons I think we love sports is winning and losing is so well-defined. 
Isn't that true? I mean, it's kind of like tonight, uh, I, I love the Warriors, okay, so you're, you can hate me now, but um, I've given up on the Lakers about nine years ago, and, you know, the Warriors actually play like a team, so I love those guys. So what's great, they're playing at 7.30, and by about 10 o'clock tonight, I will know who won. It's very objective. It's not like figure skating where, oh, 6.2, you know, all of that. I hate that. It's all subjective. Why did you think she did better than her? They both did great. You know, it's, it, it's kind of stupid to me, but uh, forgive me. I like objectivity in my sports. Who got the most points? It doesn't matter who did the best or, you know, all of that. kind. Of, the only thing that matters at the end of the game, who had the most points. That's why I love sports. It's very objective. And the, you know what's inbounds and you know what's out of bounds. You know when the game is going to be over. And so everything is laid down for, so for guys who are very objective and like that kind of thing, it really appeals to us. But life isn't like that. Tomorrow morning you say, Lord, I want to run the race that is set before me. Okay. So, Lord, set the race before me and I'll run it. Still waiting, Lord. So, I want to talk a little bit about what the race is. Unfortunately, there's no cosmic scoreboard. There's no divine website that you can go down to to see the rules of the game. There's God's Word. So, let's talk about the race. The writer of Hebrews gives us a great clue as to what the race is. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So I want you to understand, Jesus in this analogy is the finish line. You know, if you're a great marathoner and you're seeing that finish line, you're pumping, you're running, you're giving your last shot to get to that finish line. So what you do is you focus on the finish line and the finish line is Jesus. Now he gives us another clue. He calls him the author, it's a terrible translation for that word. It should really be captain or champion or hero of our faith. That word literally means hero. So, so the writer is saying, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the hero of our faith. The guy who has gone before us, and when he's saying that, he's saying he's the guy who showed us how to do it. Then he calls him the perfecter of our faith. So not only did Jesus run the race before us to show us what the finish, where the finish line is, but he's the one working in us to help us get to the finish line. So what do we learn from this? I want to give you a very simple definition of the race. Our race, and it's written in your notes, is to grow lives that imitate Jesus in his life his love, and his mission. That's our race. If you look at that, you'll see there are some internal components to that race, and then there are some external or doing and talking points to that race. So let's talk about that. There are three things that I've come up with as I look at Scripture that imitating Jesus looks like. First of all, imitating Jesus is living a life of growth and obedience to God in every area of our lives. And let me give you the scriptures, why I came up with that. Luke 2.52, they're all written down there for you, but read them with me, okay? Let's read these together. 
And Jesus kept increasing. That means we read out loud together, okay? Here we go. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You know, one of the problems with evangelicals, we don't really know how to read Scripture together, do we? We need to learn to project a little bit and get a little excited about that. Okay. Uh, so let me read John twelve forty nine through 50. Jesus said when he was on earth, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a, a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that this commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father who told me. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I didn't, I'm the Son of God, but I didn't come to do my own thing. I came to speak just as the Father told me to speak. Look at John 15, 9 and 10. This is one of my favorites. He says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now watch this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here's the point I want you to understand. Part of running the race is very simply learning to obey Jesus Christ in everything. Just as when he was on earth, he obeyed God the Father in everything. So he obeyed God the Father, and now he's saying to us, if you want to run the race fixing your eyes on me, then you will obey me in everything that I say. Now there's this couple of scriptures I want you to write down that I didn't put in your notes, but these are very important for this. James 1, 21 through 25. You all have pens, right? No, you don't. That's all right. James 1, 21 through 25, Luke 6, 46 through 49, and Psalm 1. These are all talking about the need for obedience to God's word. So the whole point of this is, if you're going to run the race, the internal component of your journey is growing in God's word, growing in the knowledge of God's word, but more importantly, growing in the obedience to God's word. See, as American Christians, we're great at the first part. We're great at getting more knowledge, aren't we? I'll listen to 10 podcasts a week. I'll read Christian books. I'll, I'll do all of this stuff. But the problem is we aren't learning to obey. And if you want to run the race, the first thing you must do is you must begin to make a pattern in your life of not just learning God's word, but obeying God's word. It's actually kind of revolutionary. It'll change your life. All right, secondly, imitating Jesus secondly means worshiping God in everything we do and say. This was the passion of Jesus. John 17, 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on the earth. Everything Jesus came to do was to make God the Father look good. Okay, he lived his life. He was the son of God, but he still lived his life 
to bring glory to God the Father. Guess what God the Father was doing? God was working to bring glory to Jesus Christ. So Jesus was bringing glory to God the Father. God the Father was bringing glory to Jesus Christ. It's this crazy mystery of the Trinity. But all of this stuff is flying around. But the point is, Jesus lived his life to bring God into focus for us. Now, let's read some scriptures. Jesus says in John 4, 23, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, God seeks to be his worshipers. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. All right, let's take this. Running the race, we said, first of all, is growing in your knowledge of God's word and growing in your obedience of God's word. That's going to take you on the journey of becoming like Jesus Christ. Secondly, growing, or excuse me, running the race is becoming an imitator of Jesus in that just as it was Jesus' desire to make God the Father look good, now it's our passion to make Jesus look good. So we want to we want to proclaim the excellencies of God. We want to glorify God. So here's the key. This week, do you want to do you want to run the race? Look for every opportunity you have to make Jesus look good. Share how he's answered prayer. Share the great things he's done in your life. Talk about him and live your life so that when people look at you and they say, you're a Christian? Yeah, I am. Pretty cool. God must be doing something good in you because I've seen the changes. And I had a friend, in fact, he was a next door neighbor. I've lived next door to him for many, many years and, and you know, tried to stir up conversations and things like that. Never very interested. Um, but then a crisis hit. And he came next door and he said, you know, you're the only Christian I've ever met without strings attached. I need you to pray with me. I need you to talk with me. And we had an amazing conversation because he saw Jesus in me. And I I actually look at that more at the grace of God than anything I was doing right because I couldn't quite figure out what he saw in me. But the point is Jesus was working in me and he saw that. Third, we've talked about um, we've talked about um, growing in obedience. We've talked about worshiping. Thirdly, imitating Jesus means serving as He served. Mark ten forty five. Jesus says, "For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many." I don't think that's in your notes. Uh, Luke twenty two twenty seven. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am here among you 
as the one who serves. So in running the race, Jesus decided that serving, being known as a servant, was a priority for his life. Now let me ask you a question. If people looked at you and somebody said, hey, describe Harry, Betty, Susie, Sally, you know, describe this person. Would servant be one of the top three words that come out of their mouth? Would they go, oh, man, there's one thing I know about that guy. He's a servant. She puts the needs of other people before her own. She's always asking, how can I help? What can I do? And I want to jump down to 1 Peter 4. We need to move along here. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift. By the way, if you're a Christian, you have received a special gift. God has gifted you uniquely to serve the body in a way that nobody else can. So cool. As each one has received a special gift, put it to use, employ it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, let me tell you what's going on when you serve in the body of Christ or when you serve other believers or when you serve people in need. You are actually a tool of God's grace in their lives. You're a means of God blessing them with grace as you serve them. So you're actually becoming a conduit for the grace of God for other people. He goes on and he says, whoever speaks, you ought to do it as if you're speaking the utterances of God. In other words, make sure you're not giving your opinion. Make sure you're focused on God's word. Whoever serves, you ought to do it from God's strength and not your own. You want to be great in God's kingdom, Jesus said? Learn to be the servant of all. So we've seen three things about running the race. Running the race is growing in your knowledge and obedience to God's word. Running the race is glorifying and worshiping God at every opportunity all the time. Number three, running the race is looking for opportunities to serve other people with the strength and abilities that God has given you. When can you stop? When can you retire? When you die. All right? Or if Jesus comes back, that's, that's a caveat. You can get out of it early that way. So, so your race is done when you die, when you quit breathing, when they put you six feet under. Until then, every breath you take belongs to God. Every ounce of energy you have belongs to God. Every second of your day belongs to God. And you look for opportunities. How can I be of use to you, God? By being of use to other people. Fourth thing, imitating Jesus means fulfilling his mission. Okay. Jesus didn't come to heal. He did a lot of healing and it was really cool. Jesus didn't come to teach. He did a lot of teaching. That was was cool. Jesus didn't come to show us how to love each other. You know, you hear all of these reasons where people say, oh, this is why Jesus. No, we don't have to guess because Jesus tells us exactly why he came. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. 
Who was lost? We were lost. And Jesus came to seek us and then by dying for us to save us. So God the Father sent God the Son with a very specific mission. And for Jesus to say the three words, it is finished. What he was saying was, God, Father, I accomplished the mission. I did what you wanted me to do. He ran the race. So what does it look like for us? Well, uh, you guys, we, we won't take time to read Matthew 28. You know this. Jesus said, two words define our mission, make disciples. Help people identify with Jesus through faith and baptism. Help people grow to obey Jesus by living like disciples. Now, we're going to do that in a million different ways. And this is where it gets fun to be a follower of Jesus and to run the race. See, we all have the same mission, right? But we don't all have the same calling. So what this is saying is not that you have to go stand on a uh, a street corner and preach to people or hand out tracts or go door to door. That's not what it's saying. It's saying you need to be a part of the church's mission of making disciples. Some of you will do this by feeding the homeless. Some of you will do this by uh, making clothes for people who are in need. One One of the great ways to fulfill the mission of Jesus is to break up hard ground with acts of love. So some of you may be better as lovers, showing people the love of Jesus on a day-by-day basis if you're a student, going after that student who everybody hates, everybody loves to make fun of, everybody loves to, to push off to the side, and you chase them down and befriend them. Why? Specifically, because nobody else does. Or maybe you're at work and you see a guy who's fallen behind, and you go serve them and help them catch up with their work so that they don't lose their job. You see, when we love people, this is a part of fulfilling the mission of Jesus Christ. That's why he calls us the light of the world. He says, let your light shine before men, before people, in such a way that they may see your good works. Good works, by the way, are always works of love towards people who are needy. Those are what good works are. It's not polishing your car. Hey, I did a good work, you know. No, it's doing works that help people who are in need. That they may see your good works, and what will they do when they see your good works? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So some of you may not be great at speaking, and that's okay. You don't have to be. Love people. And what you'll find is when you love people as Jesus loved them, guess what? They're going to start asking you why. And it gets a lot easier to share with people when they've asked you why. 
They've actually initiated the conversation. Why are you loving me? You know why I love you? Because the God of this universe loved me and he has filled my heart so so much with love that it just pours out and I just, that's why I love you. I love because my God first loved me. And by the way, I'd love for you to know this God who has loved me that way. Man, it's probably the most effective witness you can have. All right. We have different callings, but we are all called to be missional. That means on mission every day of our lives. All right. So those are the four things that I came up with. We grow in obedience, just like Jesus did. Jesus increased increased in wisdom, in stature. In other words, he's growing physically, but he was growing in favor with God, and he was growing in favor with people. So there's going to be growth to our lives. There's going to be development, but there's always growth in obedience. So that's number one. Number two is we're going to be growing as worshipers of God. Number three, we're going to be moving forward as servants of God. And number four, we're going to be moving forward on mission, fulfilling the mission that God gave Jesus. Jesus started, and then Jesus gave us to finish, okay? That's our race. Very simple. So how do we run this race? Okay, now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 9. This is such a cool passage. Paul says, do you not know that those in a race all run, but only one receives the price? Anybody have an idea in the Olympics in the 200 meter? What the difference between the gold medal winner and the guy who finished fourth out of the medals completely? You know, you know what the difference was? Less than a second. I mean, bum, 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 the four guys just, now there were, you know, there's me, you know, three hours later, 200 meters, you know. <laughs> there's always some guy from, I'm not going to say a country because one of you are probably from that country, but you know, they're, they're the Shlomos of the world. In fact, their name is Shlomo. And, and they, they run the 200 meter in 10 minutes. And, and so, but, but between the first place guy and the fourth place guy, it's just boom, 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 boom. And Paul says, you know what? Everybody runs, but only one receives the prize. And I want you guys to run to win. There's a neat little article on the internet floating around right now. And it's the difference between being 99% committed and 100% committed. Any of you seen that article? It's It's awesome. Just Google 99% versus 100%. You'll see it right away. But the whole idea of this article is that it's actually easier to be 100% committed to something than it is to be 99% committed. And you say, why is that? When you're 100% committed, you've already made your decisions. All right, let's say, let's say I'm 99% committed to losing weight. Oh, really want to lose weight. So Thursday morning comes up. I wonder if I should get a donut. (laughs) See, that little 1% there 
see, and the problem is the 1% never stays 1%. It kind of grows to 10, 20, 40, 60. So, you know, I, I think, oh, I deserve a treat. I taught last night. I'm tired. I'll just get a donut today. Then Friday rolls around. You know what? Uh, that was a good donut. I think I'll have another donut. And then Saturday, and you can always figure out an excuse. Yes. So when you're 99% committed, you're still making the decision, am I going to do it or not? And that's why we fail so much in what we're trying to do. We're 99% committed. What's the difference? When you're 100% committed, you've already thought, what are the things that are going to stop me from losing weight? Well, donuts are going to stop me from losing weight, so I'm going to make a decision. No donuts. No froyo. Even though it's fat-free. I don't know if any of you ever saw that Seinfeld where they were eating fat-free frozen yogurt and they were all gaining weight, getting fat, you know. It's, it's really hilarious. Fat-free is not the best thing for losing weight, by the way. Y'all, I think you all know that. But, but you see, people who are 100% committed to running the race and winning the gold, they wake up and they say, I'm a little sore and then they get out and they run. People who are 99% to wake up a little sorry. You know what? I'll run tomorrow. You see? You guys, I want to be blunt, but I want to be loving. How committed are we to running the race that is set before us? How have you done in getting in God's word? You know, it's been such a busy week. You know, I just haven't had time. How's your prayer life? Oh, you know, I can never get time to get alone and be quiet and, and pray, and I don't know what to pray about anyway. And so we, where we are 100% committed to is making excuses. How are you doing getting to know your next-door neighbor? Well, you know what? The playoffs are on, and I love the playoffs, and I, I don't want to, you know. There's always See, the problem with 99% commitment is you have 100% distractions. There will always be things to do other than what you're 99% committed to. So, if you want to be 100% committed to running the race, what do you do? First, figure out where you're not running the race. Now, this will sound kind of negative to start off with this. But maybe you'll say, maybe you'll start out by saying, you know what? I'm not, I'm not consistent in my time with God. I got to be honest with you. That, that is the greatest struggle of my life. I thought, oh, when I get out of school, it'll be easier. Oh, when I get married, it'll get easier. When I get kids, it'll get a lot easier because I'll have more stability to my life. You know, that's right. When my kids get out of the home, it'll be easier. You know, it's always a good excuse. And the only fact of the matter is I've chosen, catch this, I've chosen that more other things are more important than getting with God. So if you want to be 100% committed, the first thing you have to do is stop lying to yourself. 
Don't say, I don't have time to get into God's Word. Say, I don't want to get in God's Word. And I think that's really healthy for you to say that. If you look at your life and you're not consistent with God with God's Word, say it. Say, my life is showing I don't want to get into God's Word. Don't say, I want to, but I just don't have time. That's a flat-out lie, isn't it? So if the difference between people who are 99% committed to something and 100% is people who are 100% stop lying to themselves. And they start asking the question, what is it that I need to do that's really important? Then they ask, when am I going to do it? Then they ask, where am I going to do it? Then they ask, what am I going to do when I sit down to do it? That's what I meant when I said that people who are 100% committed to something have already made the decisions they need to make to do something. So if you're having trouble figuring it out, you know, it, it was great. When I was dating, I was single. I didn't marry till I was in my mid-20s. And I loved dating around. Like, I, this will sound terrible. I'd actually have three dates with three different women on one weekend, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday. It was great. And I, and I remember this one girl came up to me. She says, am I Steve Larson's girlfriend? And I kind of went, I don't know. And I never thought of that. I, I don't think so. Well, she didn't want to date me anymore because it was either all or nothing for her. And I, but I always had this great built-in excuse. I'm too busy. You know, I, have, uh, I, have my, I had a singing group. We were traveling and doing evangelistic concerts. I was a youth pastor. I worked at a department store, and I was going to school full-time. So I really was really busy, averaging about four hours of sleep a night during those years. It was crazy. And so that, that excuse really worked. Oh, I don't have any time. Sorry, I'd love to get to know you more, but just have to date lightly. And uh, <laughs> then I met Connie. And my schedule magically opened up. I had all of these big windows of time where I could get to know her. Why? Because I chose that I wanted to do that. So let me give you some examples. Uh, we, we talked about... Um, we talked about, for example, if you're having trouble in your time with God, sit down and actually figure out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it and where you're going to do it. If you already make those decisions, you'll find it much easier to actually do it. Let's say uh, you're sitting here tonight and you say, you know what, I'd love to be a better witness for Christ, but I don't even know the gospel. So what do you think a person in that situation should do. Hmm? Exactly. Learn the gospel. You see, this is where it gets real simple to figure out your next steps, and we're going to talk about taking next steps. Figure out what it is that's holding you back from effectively running the race, and then deal with that. And here's the key. Deal with them one at a time. I have found the thing that kills me is I get in these big, emotional times of wanting to change my life, and I want to change everything at once. And I've discovered something. Now, maybe you're not this way, but here's how I am. I have X amount of willpower. And once that's gone, it's gone. So if I'm trying to lose weight, and I'm trying to get time with God, and I'm trying to do this, and I'm trying to do this, I find I just, 
I give up too quickly because I, I can't do everything at once. So here's what I've learned. Do one thing at a time. So let's say you're going to build time with God. Set a six-week goal. Every day, I'm going to sit down at six in the morning or seven in the morning or five at night or 7.30 at night, seven o'clock. Great thing to do, seven o'clock at night, declare a TV-free zone for your family. In fact, make it a screen-free zone for your family. No screens on from seven to eight. And you can do whatever you want, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pursue God during that hour. You'd be amazed how your life, you do that every day for six weeks. Now you're well on the way to establishing a habit. Now you're growing in your obedience and knowledge of God's word. Now you build on that by tackling something else, but don't tackle too much at once. Do one more thing. And again, work on it over the next six weeks. Oh, I want to learn the gospel. I want to be able to share it. So make a deal with your husband or wife or a friend and get to where you can share the gospel just really comfortably with each other. You've memorized every scripture you want to use. You know where it is in the Bible. You have everything ready to go. And now you start saying, God, I'd love an opportunity. I think I'm ready. And you start asking that and he'll give it to you. Let's say uh, you're struggling with sin or you've decided, you know what? I watch TV. I need to watch less TV. Uh, Forgive me. Really stupid thing to say. I've decided this is how much TV a night I'm going to watch. And I'm going to decide, maybe it's two hours a night, a one hour a night, maybe it's none, I don't know, whatever. I'm not going to tell you what you should do, but what I'm going to say is make your own decision. Share it with your wife or your husband and say, you know what, I can't make a decision for you. By the way, uh, spouses, we make terrible Holy Spirits for each other, Okay. So if you're married, don't tell your wife, okay, honey, we're only going to watch two hours a night from now on, you know. And so, oh, we watched The Warriors. Sorry, you can't watch Dancing with the Stars, you see. That's not how it works, okay? You got you to gotta be on track together, but each person saying, yes, I'm on board, okay? Uh, whatever it is, three questions. What's holding me back? If you take 10 minutes and ask yourself that question, things will start popping into your mind right away. Number two, what is taking up too much time and is not kingdom driven? Number three, what is sucking my energy? I found that I was going to bed too late. And I was getting into sleep, being sleep deprived and I didn't have any energy or strength for the next day. So I decided, I'm going to go to, this will crack you up. I'm going to bed at 9.30 now. DVR is wonderful. All right. Principle number two, how do you run the race? Number one, you become 100% committed to running the race. Number two, develop this horrible quality of self-control. I hate it. I love it, but I hate it. Self-control is saying no to what you want so that you can say yes to what you really want. All right? Does that make sense? No to what you want so that you can say yes to what you really want. 
There is only one way in the entire universe to develop self-control. Practice self-control. You, you can't pray for self-control. It will never, I, that's the mistake I made for 30 years. I pray, oh God, help me develop self-control. I just don't want to make the decision today. How do you make self-control? You practice self-control. So when I'm driving past the donut shop, the issue is not, am I going to cheat and have a donut or not? That sounds so innocuous. Am I going to feed my lust or am I going to practice self-control? Now that puts things a little more starkly, doesn't it? And you know what? When I put it on that thing, I drive past that thing like crazy. I, I don't want to feed my lust because I find out Every time I have a donut, you know what I want? Another donut. That's what sugar's designed to do. It's designed to create a hunger for itself. Salt is the same thing. Do you remember the old Lay's commercials, Bet You Can't Eat One? They were designed so that you can't eat one. That's the way all processed food is. It's all designed to create a hunger for itself. So so you start looking in your life at the issues of self-control and then you pre-make those decisions. Today, I'm not going to get a donut. I'm not going to go to frozen yogurt. I'm not going to eat, you know, buttery popcorn at the theater. I'm going to, forgive me, Lord, I'm going to take my own snacks into the theater. That's why I have a big jacket, Anna. I know it's against the rules, but I don't care. I'm only working on so many things at one time. So, so I take a little bag of almonds with me, unsalted almonds. Lots of magnesium. Great for you. All right. So, self-control is, is a, here's what self-control will do for you. And this is what got me excited about actually doing self-control. Self-control brings the theory of the Christian life into reality. You see, we talk about the joy of the Lord, but you will never experience the joy of the Lord unless you obey. You'll never obey unless you develop the self-control to say no to yourself so that you can say yes to God. So that when you start doing that, when you start living in obedience, guess what you start experiencing? The joy of the Lord. So what was theory before now becomes experience because you are choosing to practice self-control. And before you say, oh, where's God in this? I can't do it apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So I know that when I'm practicing self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way, I know that that's an indication that I'm walking by the Holy Spirit. Now, the second thing you need to develop is perseverance. You all know that if you haven't experienced tragedy, disappointment, heartbreak, crisis, you will, right? Is there anybody who doesn't know that yet? Please raise your hand because I'll repeat it. It's, you guys, Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation, trials problems. The pastors who are teaching this kind of gospel that says, oh, if you're following Jesus, he will save you from trials. They are lying through their teeth and they're doing it to suck people dry of their money. 
They are liars, they are false teachers, and they are straight from the pit of hell. I don't know how much more clearly I can say it than that. Because they are saying exactly the opposite that Jesus said. And in fact, Paul warned us that in the latter days, false teachers would come to tickle our ears. What does the tickling our ears mean? To say what we want to hear. So perseverance is that, is that athlete who is struggling with a cough or cold or whatever is going on, but they don't use it in a, as an excuse to quit. They get out and they keep running. Perseverance is that person who suffers a tragedy in their life. And rather than asking why God, they ask what? What do you want me to do? You know, Jeremiah was thrown into a dung pit, a pit where he was up to his ears in feces. He saw his nation destroyed. The pastors I work with in China have spent an average of seven years in prison. It's almost like a badge of honor to them. Perseverance is the determination that says, no matter what happens, I'm not going to quit. And by the way, perseverance is when your life will be the most fruitful of any time in life. Because when people see you persevering through trials, they go, wow, wow. Self-control is doing the right thing in normal times. Perseverance is doing the right thing in tough times. Okay? Very simple. Uh, number three. We're, I want to make sure. Uh, I'll kind of run through a couple of things and then we'll open it up for questions. But C is critical if you're going to make progress in your life. You got to let go of your past. This is not an option, folks. You, you've got to let go of your past. Because I see so many people trying to run the race and they got this big chain and this big old anchor and they're trying to run carrying the anchor. It wears you out. It discourages you. It sucks you of all emotional, spiritual, and physical energy. And I see people give up. A couple of scriptures here. Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. This is about three years, by the way, before Paul's death. And he still was on the journey. He was still on the road. He was still running the race. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me say a couple of things. You know physiologically you can't forget anything, right? So when he's saying, you know, just like when it says God remembers our sins no more, 
You say, well, God's all knowing. How can he not remember God? It's not saying that he goes, oh, I forgot that you did that. You know, it's not, that's not. Forgetting in this context is choosing not to let it dwell in your mind. That's what forgetting means. It's a choice. It's choosing not to let it dwell in your mind. And let me tell you how Satan works. Let's say I have something in my past that has just devastated me. I'm starting to move forward in my life. And Satan has the ability, by the way, and I hope you all know this, he has the ability to plant thoughts in our mind. And so all he does is he shoots a little mental hand grenade in there of that thing that happened to us. And there's an evil part of us that loves to replay that, that loves to relive it and feel the pain all over again. And all of a sudden, we're back 10, 20 years ago, reliving this experience and all of the freedom that we've started to gain. Ah, we've just grabbed a hold of the chain and we're starting to drag it again. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, Paul says that we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And let me tell you what I do because I've had a lot of mental battles throughout my life. Number one, I rebuke Satan because I believe very specifically that those thoughts are satanic attack. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit to God. So I do two things. First, I resist Satan. I say, you know what? I'm not going to allow that to dwell in my mind. Let me give you my little picture. I love this. In, whenever they have World War II movies, you know, the uh, Germans had those cool hand grenades. They had a stick and a big thing at the end, you know. Huh? That's what they called them, potato matters. And they'd throw them into the place where the Americans were. And the smart American would grab it before it went off. And he'd throw it back out. It explodes and blows up the Germans. I love that part in the movie. It's great. And that's my picture of what I do with satanically implanted thoughts. I grab them quickly and throw them out before they have a chance to explode. If I let them stay in there and they explode, whew, now i got a big battle on my hands. So maybe you've had a rape. Maybe you've had a, a divorce. Maybe you've had a, somebody swindle you out of money. Maybe you've had a terrible thing happen in your past. You must, through the grace of God, win the battle of your mind. You say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You can win this battle. And you can say, Jesus, you have set me free. This thought is not freedom. So I'm casting it out right now. And Jesus, I'm coming to you and I'm claiming the freedom that you died to give me. You get good at that. It takes practice. You don't learn this all at once. It's, it's a skill that you build, okay? Um, the other thing that you need to let go of is the successes of your past. Those are as deadly as the failures. Have you ever met a high school quarterback who still talks about the touchdown that, and he's 50 years old? You know what that is? That's pathetic. What is that? The, was that your, the high point of your life and everything's been downhill from there? You guys, let go of it. 
And in Philippians 3 is such a wonderful example of this. Paul lists all of the things that were, I guess, part of his self-esteem. He's a great Jew. He's a teacher. He's really educated, really rich, everything going for him. And then he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And what he's saying is he's saying, I'm not even going to dwell in those things that I loved in the past because I want to know Christ more than I want to hang on to those things. So when we talk about leaving the past behind, we're talking about leaving both the good things and the bad things. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy them. Just don't make it part of your identity, okay? And final thing, and then we'll, we'll quit with this. Always be looking for the next step. And what I'd love to encourage you to do is once a month, take time and say, God, what is the next step you have for me in my life? Because God always has a next step. And the fun of life is discovering those next steps you know, um, when January rolled around, January 2017, I had no idea where we're going, what we're doing. All of the things that we'd worked on in 2016 and 15 had kind of fallen apart. And I was going, what do I do? And God unfurled, and so far, we're just in, what, April? Man, it seems like longer than that. So far... 2017 has been the most fruitful year of my life. And my schedule between now and October is packed with things that God has unfurled, but I had to be willing. I couldn't spend time, oh, everything, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Oh, it's not happening. Oh, man, this, God, why are you doing this? Why, this is so unfair, God. Oh, man, I wish, I wish, I wish, you know, all of that kind of stuff we do. And Connie and I just started praying. We started asking, God, what's the next step? So our mission gets a letter from a guy or an email from a guy in Sri Lanka. He says, I need help training pastors. I'm all alone and I've got pastors all over the country. Would you come? Yeah. So we go to Sri Lanka to check this out. We meet a guy who's amazing, who's going to be our contact on the ground. He introduces us to about 80 pastors who have been trained to a, I guess, a, a Sunday school level. You know, another, that's not bad. I mean, but that's, that's, they're leading churches and that's all the training they've ever had. And this guy, who is our contact, has given him everything he's got. And he says, would you build on what I've laid, the foundation that I've laid? And so we went. We had an amazing time with them. Going back in August and going back in October, we're going to set up a three-time a year for the next four years of going to Sri Lanka to help these guys build up their lives. God always has a next step for you. You guys, this is so great. Always take time. You know, it, it's interesting. You know, you ask a marathoner how they run a marathon. I hear so many of them say, one step at a time. If you think about doing 26 miles, I mean, ah! But if, no, I just take the next step and then the next step. Johnny Erickson Tata said something that I've never forgotten. She said, somebody, some idiot asked her, how can you stand thinking about spending the rest of your life in a wheelchair? 
And she said, God hasn't asked me to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And that kind of took the guy by surprise. He's asked me to spend today in a wheelchair. I don't know what he has for me tomorrow. But when tomorrow comes, I'll tackle that. Guys, how do you win this race? One step at a time.